about any kind of opponent or opposition, whether we're talking about sports or military or even spiritual warfare, we are wise if we know our opponent or our enemy. I think of boxing and the sport of boxing. They, uh, they talk about boxing as uh, one of those sports where you're learning to dodge a punch while coming up with another punch. Um, it is the idea that not only do you need to know the fundamentals, but you need to know the strengths and weaknesses of your opponents. So many times in getting prepared for a fight, they are not only working on the basics, but they're working on those extra things so that their opponent doesn't know what they're going to do, but those extra things that they can do to beat their opponent. Now, having said that, when it came to Mike Tyson, he was the one who said, all your plans go out the window with my first punch. So that, that is true. But even wrestling, um, you're, you're, you're knowing moves. And, and uh, it's interesting that the Bible talks about this section as we, are strugg- we have a struggle with not human flesh and bones, but with these spiritual forces. And the word is wrestling there. It means hand-to-hand combat. And there is a nuance with wrestling, not that it's deceptive in the sinful sense, but it's crafty. So when you're wrestling, you're pulling out new moves that your opponent is not thinking about so that you can get him into a move that he hadn't thought about. Uh, You know, while we're talking about sports, I... I, uh, I've just thought about hunting. So if you're going to hunt, you really do need to know your quarry. You need to know uh, its intelligence, its habits, and things like that. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you realize that even though they're just animals, sometimes they're smarter than us humans. So knowing your opponent. What about military? Well, there are a lot of great examples through history of military in their schemes of one way or another, either eluding or uh, flanking or coming up with a new strategy that their military enemy is not expecting. And then also understanding ahead of time, what is that enemy going to do when I respond in a certain way? Well, I suppose Custer would be the prime example. Um, He obviously did not know all that he needed to know when engaging and fighting with the Indians. And evidently, the Indians kind of had him kind of uh, pinned down and understood what he was going to do. They thought that he would exactly rush after these few enemies, uh, Indians, uh, Custer's enemies, following after them, pulling them into an ambush pulling them into an ambush. Well, we come today to talk about the number one enemy of God who is opposed to God, not that God has to fear him. God is the creator. Satan is a created being who has now fallen. Um, He is the enemy of Christ. We're going to see that, that he has opposed Christ. And we're going to see that he has opposed the church and he's going to oppose the believer. And if you would, take a look with me at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. It was read this morning by Lee, and I'll go ahead and kind of translate it from the Greek. This first verse, 11, we, we did cover most of it, but notice, literally it would be with the emphasis of the imperative, you must clothe yourself with the full armor of God in order to be able to stand firm against the methods or the stratagems of the devil. The word there is methodeus. We get our English word methods from it, from the methods, the strategies, the stratagems of the devil. So I want to talk about our enemy, the devil, this morning. And then verse 12, which is part of this, it's the hierarchy of the devil. I want to uh, talk about this, though I doubt that we're actually going to get in this in detail 
this morning. There's, there's really a lot here that I wanted to cover. It would read, so we're learning about the schemes of the devil for or because the struggling or wrestling of ours is not, and the word not is emphatic. It actually comes in the very front of this passage. So it would be because not. There's an emphasis here that it's not against flesh and blood. Now, flesh and blood will be used by the enemy to bring onslaughts, to bring temptation, to bring bad decisions, to bring anything it can to cause us to fall or to ruin our testimony. But it's not the human agent. It's emphatic for the struggling or wrestling, and that's hand-to-hand wrestling, of ours is not against literally blood and flesh, flesh and blood, but against the rulers, RK, or those who were in our Greek class this morning, RK, against the authorities, against the world rulers of this darkness, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. And this is the hierarchy of it. So this morning, I want to really talk a little bit about Satan, a little bit about the biblical references, how much he's spoken of in the Bible, some of his names and titles. I want to talk about the origin of Satan, and then we want to talk about the fall of Satan. This is where this angelic being, perhaps the strongest and most beautiful angelic being, or one of them at least, fell and took a third of heaven with them, her a third of the angelic realm. They became demons, we call them. They are fallen angels. We want to talk about the fall of Satan, which will include the judgment. And then we want to talk about the activities of Satan. And that's probably as far as we'll go. We'll, I want to talk about the activities of Satan in relationship to God, and then the activities of Satan in relationship to Christ. Next week, in the second part of this, we will talk about the activities of Satan in relation to the world. And we'll also talk about the activities of Satan in regard to believers. So this is where we're heading. This is a two-week study. All right. If you would, then, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, 11 through 12. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, we, we want to be attentive to your word. We want to understand your word. And not only do we want to understand it, but we want to be able to apply it as best we can. If we're engaged in a warfare... 24 7 365 we need to realize that this isn't a walk in the park this is something that's very serious and yet the truth of the matter is lord we have enjoyed great blessing with you and with here believers here at the church and there's so much that you have protected us with and we ask you to continue to do that but at the same time lord let us not be ignorant let us be participants lord And what you have for us in, number one, knowing the enemy, number two, standing firm against the enemy, and number three, putting on the armor of God. And we'll give you all of the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so as far as an introduction goes, there's a lot of things we could say about Satan, is it not? But I think one of the most common forms of disbelief is the disbelief that Satan is actually a person. He is just evil. Or when people do bad things in the world, that's evil. And evil is just a a thing with people don't do right. It's evil. No, the truth of the matter is Satan is a person. He's a personal being. And he is an angelic being, which automatically puts him way above us as humans. As far as strength, and even as far as wisdom goes. 
However, he has sinned against the Lord and been cast out of heaven. The second kind of uh, thing that we need to be careful of is so if, if people do think there's evil in the world, not just evil in general, but you've heard it, and I've even mentioned this, it's this idea of dualism. It's a philosophy that, well, there is something to this force of evil, and there's a force of good out there, and these two battle all the time. Now, we believe that there's a battle between good, God's goodness, and Satan's evil, but it's not an equal fight. It's not as though, wow, uh, Satan pushes God back for a little, and then God pushes Satan back for a little. God is omnipotent. He is creator. Satan is a created being. And then, of course, we have the idea that if we do think of Satan uh, in pictures and in comics, he's always uh, someone who wears red leotards and has a pitchfork, and he creates havoc and disarray wherever he goes. And you still see that today, but I, I have noticed that over the years, perhaps because there's been a progression in the ability of technology to do artwork, but the pictures of Satan, the artwork of Satan have become unbelievably grotesque and worse. It's as if they're doubling down on how we ought to uh, think of Satan. And of course, many of those who would be involved in that art and the, and the drawing of Satan wouldn't even believe in his person. It's just something to draw. But it's not until we come to the scriptures that we realize he is absolutely a person. And we see a fuller and accurate picture of Satan from the scriptures. And that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at what Satan, ha what the word has to say about Satan, who is our enemy. Now, as far as the biblical references go, uh, it is interesting in taking a broad look at it. Satan is mentioned in at least seven of the Old Testament books. Genesis, 1 Chronicles, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. So he's mentioned specifically. We come to the New Testament, and he may not be mentioned in every book of the New Testament, but he is mentioned by every New Testament writer. So some writers have written more than one book, and in at least one of those books, there is a mention of Satan. And then even Jesus himself referred to Satan often. In fact, I read a fact that of the 29 times that he's mentioned in the gospel, that Satan is mentioned in the gospel, 24 of those come from the mouth and teaching of our Lord. In the Bible, he is given names and titles. What do names and titles have to do with anything? Well, just like when we study the attributes of God and his character, his name, God's names depict aspects of his character and who he is. In fact, somebody once said that for every need that we would ever have as believers could be solved by knowing a particular name of God and where he would minister to us in that aspect. But for Satan, there is some at least, at least 27 names and titles and references to Satan. I'm not going to give all 27, but there are at least 27 uh, names and titles that are given to him uh, in the scriptures. I do want to look at several of them. I want to look, first of all, at the name Satan. And by the way, Satan, or in the Hebrew, Satan, or in the Greek, Satanos, in the Old Testament, he is mentioned 33 times. In fact, we do understand a few things about Satan from the Old Testament. It's not only the New Testament are we able to figure out the, the person of Satan. In fact, it's the Old Testament that really te teaches us about his fall, and that he was created perfect. We'll take a look at that in a moment. 36 times, Satanus, the, the word Satan, is used 36 times in the New Testament. And it literally means adversary or enemy. Your adversary is someone who is against you. 
Now, if you're talking about boxing or you're talking about wrestling, it's your opponent who you could be friends with until you hit the mat. But this is spiritual warfare. This isn't even military. This is beyond that because this is who we wrestle against. He is our adversary and he is our enemy. Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4, ends up commanding him to leave. Go, Satan. And of course, he quoted once again scripture. So this is what Satan means. It means adversary or enemy. And believe me, that's exactly what he is. He's, well, I don't want to give away any other title. So we'll just go to the next one. The next one is the devil. Now, the devil uh, in the New Testament is the Greek word diabolos. And we get our English word diabolical. That's a very good description of him. And so here the scriptures are giving us another aspect. Not only is he our enemy, we are hated by him, but he is diabolical. He knows where our weaknesses are, and he knows how to trip us up. And it, it means diabolical, used 37 times in the New Testament. But it also has the idea of a slanderer, someone who slanders. That's what he is. He's diabolical. He sets a trip, a, 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 something to trip us up with, and then is the one who would go accuse us to God. It's interesting, though, that in that context, Christ is our advocate. He's the one that stands up for us as a lawyer and perhaps says, yes, yes, my child has sinned, but I died on the cross for my child. That child has placed his faith in me, child of God, and I have taken that. And, of course, the Holy Spirit works in our lives so that we don't trip up in Satan's diabolical means. Now, one of his other names, really one of the first names that's used, is the, is the name Serpent. He is known as the Serpent because character of serpents are sly and crafty in character. And so when he is in the, in the book of Genesis, he's called the Serpent. It's because of that character, that craftiness that he leads first of all Eve into sin and then Adam also joins in sin. Now I believe indeed that when it comes to the serpent in Genesis it is referring to Satan though it doesn't say Satan. It says serpent. It says now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made and he said to the woman he spoke. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. I have no reason to say that he would not have possessed a snake, a serpent. I have no reason to believe that he did not speak. I, I believe that he did. And as we see this, he is the one who tempted Eve into sinning. Now, what's interesting is there are other references in 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul talks about what Satan did and deceived Eve. He says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The point being that the serpent, i.e. Satan, deceived her. Now, if we need more evidence that the serpent is Satan, I ask you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. I want to look at verse 9. And we are talking about Satan because it, it gives the name Satan. But it's, first of all, the subject the character is the great dragon. He is the great dragon in the book of Revelation. It says, and the great dragon was thrown down. Well, who's the great dragon? So you've been going through the book of Revelation and you're not sure who the great dragon is. Well, the Bible is its own best commentary. It says, i.e., the serpent of old, who is called the devil, Diabolos, and Satan. 
Santanas. And so it tells us who the serpent was both in Genesis and also in 2 Corinthians. And he is depicted here with that slithering, sly craftiness in his character in order to trip up believers. And as I said, when he trips up a believer, then what does he do? Then his name is called the accuser of the brethren. That's what he does. The idea is that he is an enemy of God. He is an enemy of Christ. And in order to get back at them, he will indeed go after the believer. He will go after the church. And he is, one of his main ministries is to accuse the brethren. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, the very next verse, it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now... The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren, who is that? The great dragon, the serpent, devil, Satan. The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. That is one of the evil ministries of Satan. And then another title of his that I think it's worth talking about is that he is called the father of lies. We see him lying to Eve in the garden in order to get her to sin. He even accuses God of lying there to her. He's the father of lies, meaning that, uh, meaning that indeed this is where it stems from. He started it. Really, we could say that he is, as far as the origin of sin goes, it did start with Satan. As far as man, came through Adam and Eve. But he was the first one to sin. He's the father of lies because he's a deceiver. And you think about the deception that he's done in the world, thinking that sin and a self-centered, materialistic, immoral lifestyle is really what life is all about. That's what the deceiver says. And he never once tells them about the judgment that is awaiting such behavior of those who do not trust Christ. He's called the father of lies in the book of John, Gospel of John. Verse 44, Jesus said, You are of your father the devil. Oh my word, could you imagine the Lord saying that to an individual? And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Very interesting. The attributes of God are goodness and righteousness and holiness and mercy and compassion. Because they come from him inherently. His nature. But from Satan comes his nature Lying, murdering, violence, nothing to do with the truth except counter-truth. Well, let's kind of go back to the beginning. Let's talk about the origin of Satan. And when we're talking about dualism, yin and yang, you know, evil and good, fighting it out, and some days... uh, the good side wins, and some days the evil side wins. That, that's absolutely wrong. By the way, Jesus said that the works of the devil have already been destroyed, though he has been permitted temporarily to be alive and well. Well, the reason why dualism is not truth, not even logical, is because Satan is a created being whereas God alone is the omnipotent omnipotent creator. So we're going to be looking in Ezekiel a little later. You don't have to turn there, but it says in Ezekiel 28, 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until righteousness, unrighteousness was found in you. So the idea is that he was created and he was created perfect, righteous, But he fell. He was the first one to fall. But the reason why dualism doesn't work is because you have God, the creator, the omnipotent, all-powerful God against a mere created being. 
who with by just a word could destroy the devil. But the works of the devil were indeed destroyed by the work of Christ on the cross. Now, I do want to go to Ezekiel. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 28. Before we talk about Satan being originally created, well, obviously he was an angelic being, um, and before we look at his beauty and, and wisdom, I want to just talk about Ezekiel 28. Now, in Ezekiel 28, it is talking about the king of Tyre, who was not a good guy either. <laughs> But then there really is a double reference to Satan. He's a good guy. Okay, let me, let me rephrase that sentence. The king of Tyre is a good example of Satan. He is a good illustration of the evilness of Satan. But then in Ezekiel 28, it also, I believe, refers to Satan. Now, it doesn't say Satan's name right out. But we have to learn how to interpret correctly. And what we find out in chapter 28 of Ezekiel, verses 1 through 10, I believe it's clearly talking about the, the real-life king of Tyre and his evil and his exploits. But when we get to verses 11 and move through the rest of that, all of a sudden there is heightened language. Language that could not be referred to to any mere human king. And it must be referring to Satan. When the context in the first part is referring to the king of Tyre, he is described as a man, which he is. But from verses 11 on, now all of a sudden he describes an anointed cherub. Well, the king of Tyre was anything but an anointed cherub. And we're also going to see that you could put the two together. I believe this is a double reference. I think this is what we you have sometimes, double reference. Here's the king of Tyre, but ultimately this is a good illustration to now talk about Satan, and it, it will talk about him in the presence of God before he was cast out of heaven. That clearly is speaking of Satan. But we would say this, that the king of Tyre was influenced, if not possessed. The king of Tyre was possessed and influenced by Satan much like what we're going to see with the Antichrist during the tribulation. So when we look at these verses, there are going to be some that say, well, I think he's talking about the king of Tyre. Well, you're right. But he's also, in double reference, just like in many passages where it was talking about one thing with David, there was an ultimate double reference, double fulfillment, speaking of Christ. But here, it's the double reference to Satan. Well, having said that, now let's look at Ezekiel chapter 28. Let's begin with verse 12. Now, we're going to see some of these outstanding words like the anointed cherub. You were blameless when you were created. You stood in the presence of God at the holy mountain, you walked in the midst of the stones of fire. This cannot be talking about the king of Tyre. This is talking about Satan. But it begins with Satan, and it's going to talk about, first of all, Satan was created perfect and holy. There was no sin in him. Even though it says, Son of man, verse 12, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, so there is a reference to king of Tyre there. That's what makes it confusing. But as we go on, the king of Tyre was never in the Garden of Eden. It says, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, since I believe this is speaking directly about Satan, we're talking about him that he was created not as a demon. God didn't create the, the holy angels and the demons. God created only Holy angels. But the angels fell after following Satan in his sin. But he had the seal of perfection. He was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. 
Some have said that it probably refers that he was the most beautiful of all angels, and that was part of his downfall, that he had pride uh, because of his beauty, because of his position, might have been the number one anointed cherub. And then if you'd even drop down to verse 15, verse 15 says, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So this is referring to that he was created as an angel. Now, when did he fall? We don't know exactly when he fell. Uh, I would have to say it would be sometime after the creation week because everything in the creation week, God saw it, saw that it was good. If they had fallen in the creation week, God would not be able to have looked on it and said it is good. So sometime after the creation week, and of course, seems sometime soon in the life of Adam and Eve, chapter 3. We don't know how much time passed. But he was originally perfect and holy. Second of all, he was full of wisdom and beauty. Not only beauty, but also wisdom. One of the most intelligent. And so when we're talking about Satan being a formidable foe, we are talking about someone with a superior knowledge than ours. Now, what we have is the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the word of God, which supersedes that. But in and of ourselves, he, angels, all angels, would have to be a higher being in strength and intelligence and even in ability. And so his wisdom is part of that stand firm so that we might stand against the methods, the stratagems, the tricks of the evil one. Look at verse 13. It says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, this certainly can't be talking about the king of Tyre, and it's certainly very fitting as we talk about Satan. Um, Satan was there in the creation week. It says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. It describes his beauty. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, and the diamond. The beryl, the onyx, and the jasper. The lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. And the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. So we don't don't see this kind of language towards any other angel. And so it's it's not a bad idea to, to... Submit to the fact that he might have been the most beautiful of all of the angels. We see also, too, that he was called in the next verse, verse 14, an anointed cherub. And it it talks about him being in the presence of God. You were the anointed cherub who covers. And one of the things that we get with the idea of cherubs and seraphim is that they praise God for his holiness Um, And the fact that it's anointed, that's interesting there. Um, Anointing means that you are inaugurated, that you are chosen. Um, And I think this leads to the idea that you could say that he was the most powerful and the number one angel. He says, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. And this is representative of the presence of God, being in the presence of God with all of these things which speak in reference to God's holiness and presence. That's where Satan was. We know that specifically in Isaiah 6, there were seraphim that constantly stayed before before God saying, holy, holy, holy. We see the same thing in the book of Revelation. It doesn't say whether they were cherubim or cherubim. Some people believe that in some cases both were doing that. But whatever it was, he was in the presence of God. His beauty was to illuminate the glory of God. The glory of God illuminating through his jewels, if you will. Just like heaven, the new Jerusalem, the streets are transparent gold, translucent And the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, will light up heaven through this. Perhaps even in some way, Satan was doing that with the glory of God. 
By the way, when, when you talk about cherubs, cherubim, plural, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we see that there was a cherubim stationed at the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were kicked out so that they could never come back. Verse 24 of chapter 3 says, He drove them, the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim, plural, and the flaming sword, which they turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So there's where cherub, well, they carried out the will of God. But then also, too, when Moses was instructed to build the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat where the blood was applied, where holy God would atone for the sin of sinful man, there were placed two cherubim. They, they certainly are not only in the presence of God, but they certainly demonstrate holiness. And they're in God's presence. And the scriptures teach us that this seems to be the description of Satan. Well, what happened? How did he fall? What, what happened here? Well, let's take a look at the scriptures. First of all, when we're talking about the fall of Satan, what was his sin or sins? Well, we're going to see that pride was the number one. Of all the things that God had given him, he took pride in them as though they were his. And by the way, right there is going to tell us that this is also one of the number one strategies and methods in which Satan will try to get us as believers to fall, and that is by being prideful. That that which God has given us and had victory in our lives, we take the credit for. That was us. I've always been leery of a pastor who really elevated himself above everybody else, every other believer. I wanted to be known that I, as the pastor, and would include the elders, although I hadn't talked to them about it, include the elders that we too have feet of clay. We struggle. We struggle just as, any, as anyone else does. We covet your prayers as we pray for you, and we do pray for you when we gather together in our elder meetings, we pray for you. And if there's situations and people going through dire straits, we pray for them specifically. Because pride is one of those ones that's going to come in. It's going to come in in our hearts and in one way or another. Maybe, maybe it's not so much the pride of the, the victory that we had in Christ. Maybe we're over that. But what about the material gain? Maybe there's pride of all the material things that we have. Because after all, we went out and worked for them and we got them. And, and you know, there's a, there's a sense that that's true. And I'm not saying that going out and working and providing for your family is wrong and providing for your family even in a good way. That's not wrong. But if we say it was me without the help of the Lord, then we're being a little too prideful. You know, the Old Testament talks about how it was God who provides for people. God who gives the laborer his strength to go out every day. What happens if the laborer gets sick and he can't go out? And he can't go out for a long time. And now he's not a laborer anymore. He doesn't have a job. That could befall us. Or what about times, t difficult times? We've seen difficult times economically, even in this great country of the United States of America. We've seen difficulties for one reason or another. In the Old Testament, the book of Kings, we see where God at times will bring in droughts when there won't be any water, there won't be any food, and now there's famine. And then it's always when you see famine, you see pestilence, people dying. Bodies rotting. Well, if that doesn't happen to us, then praise the Lord it doesn't happen to us. Praise the Lord that he gives you enough strength to work all the days of your life so that you can retire in comfort. That's, that's something we need to thank the Lord. If we don't, there is this idea of pride. Now, what about Satan? Well, here in Ezekiel 28, look at verse 17. In verse 17, it tells us, after he called him the, him the anointed cherub in the presence of God, verse 15, they were, he was blameless. We come to verse 17, it says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. 
You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Certainly, this is verbiage that refers to Satan because the king of Tyre was never in heaven to be cast out. But Satan was, and it's because of his pride. Now, people have said the letter I is the middle of the word pride. The letter I is also the middle of the word sin. I is in the middle. What letter are we talking about? I, 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 I. It's all about me. It's all about I. And so we see that pride is really the, one of the key attributes of Satan that caused his downfall, and it's one that is easily able to work in our lives. How about, you know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? It's possible. That's one of the things that he will work on. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, there's an interesting verse. It says, when choosing elders, don't choose a new convert so that he will not become conceited, prideful. Hey, look at me. I'm God's gift to the church. You know, I've been just waiting to tell the church how to run itself. You, you, you are now blessed that I am on the elder board. That's the wrong attitude. I, I, mentioned, I mentioned before when we were talking about Marshall Morgan. Marshall Morgan was a great man and, and, and a very humble man. And when his name had come up to be a candidate for one of the elders, he went up and put signs in the parking lot, don't vote for Marshall. <laughs> and somebody said, that's exactly the kind of guy we want on the elder board, a humble guy. It says, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. That was his sin. Well, where do we find that out? Well, I believe from Ezekiel 28, verse 17. And the word for conceited here is to fa'o. It means to be swollen, puffed up with pride. You know, look at me, look at me. And that is pride in any realm and certainly not what is to be expected of an elder. Now, we also find as far as his sin goes that we can put some of the pieces together that this pride led to jealousy, this jealousy led to violence, and it ultimately led to rebellion against God. Look at verse 16, chapter 28 of Ezekiel. Verse 16, it says, by the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence. And the best way I think I can understand that is, is, your, is who you were and your beauty, but that caused pride, and then that pride filled you with violence. And the reason why it's violence is because now he started to become bitter at God. Uh, And I'm not saying that this happened over a period of time. It may have happened instantly. But we could see easily a progression. It says, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So we see his, his pride turns into jealousy, turns into violence, turns into rebellion against God and hatred towards God. Now there's another passage, again, a little difficult to decipher, but I think it becomes very, very quickly discernible. There's the sin of Satan in the book of Isaiah, and it's called the I wills. I will, I will. The I wills of Satan. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, and we come first of all to verse 12. And I think the description here 
becomes very difficult to apply to a human being. But an angelic being, the one who fell, being Satan, I think it's easier to discern. Verse 12 begins, how have you fallen from heaven? Well, the king of Tyre didn't fall from heaven. Satan did. Oh, star of the morning. And I believe that there are times when this is a reference to angelic beings, and this would be to Satan. Son of the dawn. Thinking of his own splendor that God gave him, that he was now taking pride and credit for and jealousy and violence. You have been cut down to earth. There again, cast out of heaven. You who have weakened the nations. And then from verses 13 and 14, we come to five different I will. Five of those. And it's very interesting. And we could spend a lot of time talking about that. I I won't for the sake of time. But the first one talks about Satan desired the domain of God. The domain of God. It says, I will ascend to heaven. Heaven is God's domain. Satan wanted that domain. This is what I will ascend there. In other words, it will be mine. This is what was in the heart of Satan in his rebellion. Then we have Satan desired the dominion of God, meaning he will have power. He says, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Now, stars there could, again, refer to all the other angelic realm. It could just be referring to all that God has created. I will raise my throne above them. All of God's works, all of God's creation, even God's angelic beings that were created. So so now he desired God's dominion. And then he says, the third one, I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the the north. Or might we say he desired the dignity of God, the splendor of God, the majesty of God. He's going to sit on that mount of the assembly. He's going to be number one. Right now he's number two. He's number two to God. But, But again, it's so foolish because how can a created being ever become God? How can a created being ever go above God? And yet, that was what was in his heart. And that's what sin, pride, jealousy, violence, rebellion does. It it gives us the illogical thinking that that we can go above God. In fact, really, as we go through this, we're going to see that these are some of the things that he tempts believers with. In fact, there are people in the world that do believe that they are gods. That the new age, that, that they're God, that that they can go back through meditation to the beginning of creation where they created. And I'll never forget the time when R.C. Sproul said that he was in a train ride and sat across a woman who had just come from one of those conferences. And R.C. Sproul, in his gracious uncle way, said to her, now you really don't believe that you're God, do you? We come to verse 14. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Here we could call this Satan desired the devotion of God. He wanted the worship of God. He's above the clouds, all above the clouds so that people will worship. And then finally he says, I will make myself like the most high. He desired the deity of God. And if you remember, when he tempted Eve... He said, you will be like God. The very thing that he wanted, he's now trying to get mankind to sin in. In that pride that I am God. And you know what? We do have to be careful in America because it's only in America that we do what we want to do when we want to do it. And nobody, nobody tells us what to do. Be careful. Be careful because God always tells us what to do. God always tells us how to handle everything, our material, our possessions our actions, our behavior. So be careful with that. I'm not saying that it's, it's wrong when, when you know, you can, you can take really some, some pleasure in the fact you've worked hard and here's, here's, 
Here's some of the fruits of working hard. That's, that's not a bad thing. Even the Bible talks a little bit about that. But, but to act as if I am the king of the hill. And I'm so glad God was there to watch me. No, God was there to enable you. God was there to bless you. And we need to be careful that we thank him. And then we come to Satan's judgment. And we've talked about this. We've talked about this recently when we talked and taught the book of Revelation. Satan's judgment, first of all, he was cast out of heaven the first time temporarily. Now, Ezekiel 28.16 just said that. I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And we know that he was cast from heaven. But we also know from the book of Job that there were times when he could, I believe by God's permission, come into the presence of God. You remember that whole discourse in the book of Job? Um, There was a discourse between Satan and God, and it was in reference to Job. Well, we see Satan there. And so he was temporarily, and why do I say temporarily? Because there is going to come a time when he will be cast out permanently from heaven during the tribulation. You remember when we talked about this? Go to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And we've already read verse 4, or, or well, we haven't, we're about to. Verse, verse 4 is the verse, I believe, that talks about the first time Satan was cast out of heaven, the first time that we're talking about in this point, point number 1. And it says, Revelation twelve four, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now, we, we read from here, and we're reading into it a bit, but that a third of the angels went with him. A number of the angels went with him. They are called fallen angels. They are now called demons. But two-thirds stayed faithful to God. They are always called holy angels. And then it says, And the dragon, that's, that's Satan, stood before the woman, that's Israel, who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Who is that? Christ. This was the first time. It talks about the male child. It talks a little about the woman in the wilderness. And then we drop down to verse 9, which is the verse that we looked at before. And it says, verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down. Well, I thought he was thrown down in verse 4. Well, here he was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then the pronouncement is, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now, now that he's thrown out permanently, the second time and and permanently, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night meaning he was allowed to come and accuse us no more. Now, after the first time. So we see that he was cast out twice. And then we know that when, of course, Christ went to the cross, he destroyed the works of the devil. He is destroyed. He's on a time limit, but he is allowed to roam free at the moment. It says in 1 John 3, 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. And that's one of the ways that sin comes into our life, being tempted by the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. So he did. There's victory in the cross, but in God's ultimate will, there is still the freedom, somewhat of a freedom for Satan until the tribulation. And we see that. And then in the tribulation, the end of the tribulation, It's going to say, chapter 20, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented 
day and night forever and ever. They will be conscious and it will be conscious everlasting torment. That is hell. So that's the good part. But the bad part is, is that he is still roaming free at the moment. Peter said that he's roaming, he's roaming like a roaring lion. Um, the scriptures talk about that, that uh, even now when Paul talks about it in the, in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, he talked about the very fact that he's the prince of the air. He's the world. He's, he's in charge of the world. The world is under Satan's evil direction. Well, quickly, with just a few remaining moments that I have, I want to talk about the activities of Satan. And here's where it starts to become closer to home. This, we, we learned why Satan is the way he is, and now that we understand what he's going to do in the world and what he's going to do uh, to believers, we understand now why. We'll cover that next week. But what about his relationship to God? And what about his relationship to Christ? This, this hatred of Satan for them, and now his hatred for the believer to get back at them. Well, first of all, in his relationship to God, Satan has attacked God and set up a counterfeit program. That's the best way to describe Satan as a counterfeit program. Counterfeit everything of God. He wants to be God. He wants his own program. But, but it's impossible, so it's a counterfeit program. But that's what he's all about. It began in Genesis 3 that we talked about. He was going to begin to, to attack man. Why didn't he just leave the fight between him and God and him and Christ? But no, it was man, mankind, and now especially believers. And so when he went to mankind, Eve first, this is the idea he was now going to get them to fall. And he caused man to fall, which would require God sending his son to die on the cross in our place, if God loved us to that degree, and he did. In that temptation with Eve, he questioned several things, and probably preeminently, he questioned God's word. He begins with getting the question in verse 1. It's, indeed, has God said? Has he really said that? And then, Okay, if he really said that, does he really mean it? Or is he really hiding something from you? In other words, is his word truth? You better believe it is. You better believe it is. If you don't believe God's word is truth, you have nothing. You have nothing. You stand on nothing. My goodness, it'd be terrible if you went by culture alone because culture changes every six months on Twitter. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He's working his way in there. We also see in verse uh, 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Even though God said it, you will not die. God is lying. God's word is not truth. So he's questioning God's word. And then thirdly, he's questioning God's character. In verse 5, it says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open. He's keeping you from this. He's keeping you from all the delights of sin and the world. He's keeping you from that. God is keeping you from that. And that is so bad. No, that is so good. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is a liar is what he's saying. And he attacks God and everything is a counterfeit program. And beloved, that's why we have counterfeit religion today. Uh, there, I mean, Satan has so many avenues in which he can attack. But I believe that his number one form of attack is in false religion, is in counterfeit religion. Because there is really only two ways. Of, there's only one way of salvation, but it's expressed in two ways. The only way to salvation is when you believe that you're a sinner and that Jesus Christ died for your sins. There's nothing you could do to save yourself, but Christ died on the cross and you trust in his perfect work on the cross in your place for your forgiveness of sin and eternal life forever. But the other form is a counterfeit form. And look at the religions that we have. It is no yeah, I know you got to believe. I mean, that's in the Bible. You have to believe, but you have to do the good works. 
And as long as Satan convinces denominations and people that you have to work for your salvation, they are not going to make it to heaven. They are going to be kept from heaven. This is his counterfeit plan. He talks about men, false teachers, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. And look at the counterfeit teaching. Is there, is there Satan and demons involved in, in counterfeit teaching? You better believe they are. This is why we've got to stand on the teaching of the word. This is why we make such an emphasis on it. It's part of spiritual warfare. It's part of equipping the body. It's part of helping the body stand with the armor of God put on. It says, but, in, but the spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. Watch this. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Wow. Doctrines of demons? I'm sure the occult would fit into that. But I think it's much more, especially by the things that he begins to say. Um, He talks about them being hypocritical liars. Their conscience is seared. And then he talks about some of the fallacious things that they say men cannot do or men have to do in order to be saved. So this isn't just talking about the occult. It's talking about false doctrine, things that God has not said or denying the things that God has said. And in talking about false teaching, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, talking about these false teachers, no wonder they are false teachers that look good. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. There it is. He's an angel of light. He looks good. He talks good. Therefore, he must be good, right? No, no. It's the word of God that you must know and you must discern. So straight, Satan's strategy is counterfeit teaching of God's word. And we see this with the gospel where Satan has blinded the eyes they're blind. Do you ever talk to somebody about the gospel and it is like there's a glaze on their eye? They can't hear it. If you're talking to someone, you, you don't have to work for your salvation. You can't work for it. But you can receive it by faith. Don't you want that? Well, my family's always been Catholic. My, my family has always been this. You know, and and they give you some of the most, uh, you know, terrible excuses. They just can't see it. He has blinded the eyes of the world in his counterfeit program. Next week, we'll talk about the activities of Satan in relationship to Christ, and then also the world, and then believers, and then we'll get to the hierarchy of Satan in Ephesians 6, 12, and we see these ranks and orders of demonic hierarchy all under Satan, our enemy. If you would allow me to, I'd like to read at least one quote. A little bit lengthy, but not bad. Mr. H. Hildebrand pointed out that the book of Acts, chapter 6, 7, and 8, suggests three ways by which the devil tries to hinder the work of the Lord. It's it's the Lord's work. And of course, he's going to attack the church because he's getting back at God by attacking the church and by attacking believers. These three avenues of attack are, number one, dissension, number two, diversion, and number three, destruction. Satan attempts to frustrate our efforts for the Lord by causing dissension and strife within the church. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, we read, And in those days there arose a murmuring. This is when they were complaining because some of the Hellenistic Jews uh, were were being overlooked. And that's not a good thing, but there was an increasing number of complaints and murmuring in the church. Well, it was solved. The apostles solved it, but the murmuring and complaints is never good. There are ways to deal with that. 
but not by murmuring, not by gossiping, not by complaining. He goes on to say, how often we have seen strong testimonies completely silenced because of dissensions, murmuring, complaining, bickering, and backbiting on the part of some within the church. He says, in addition to dissensions, however, the evil one will also resort to diversion, sidetracking us from our main purpose. How he would like to have seen the 12 apostles in Acts 6 leave the word of God and serve tables. He would have rather that those apostles said, our ministry, yeah, it's the word of God, but we've got to do these other things. It was, yeah, there's needs that need to be taken care of, but we've got to be careful we don't leave the number one job because it's what keeps the counterfeit teaching of Satan at bay outside the church. And so they said, our ministry is the ministry of the word and prayer. The devil is busy at work using this very same tactic today. It is easy in our busy church programs to become sidetracked, diverted, and engaged in everything else but the ministry of the word. In addition to dissension and diversion, the devil uses destruction, the third D. In chapter 7, we see Stephen martyred. How's that for destruction? Persecution. And in chapter 8, we are told that Saul, who would become Paul, Saul made havoc of the church, pursuing them even unto death. But even as the psalmist declared, even though we're talking here about persecution and he would want to kill the church if he could, the psalmist declared that the wrath of man shall praise thee. In other words, God is sovereign even even in the midst of that happening to us. And many times I think we need to stop looking at the flesh and blood in front of us and understand where this is really coming from. Satan's destructive attack is allowed by God and used for the accomplishing of his own program. So he does allow that because you remember what happened was after, after that persecution, it says they were scattered preaching the word of God. God used that. Conscious of these three possible areas of attack, let us be on guard and prepared for the onslaughts of the adversary and the work of the ministry be not hindered. Let us put on the whole armor of God so that we may be able to withstand in the evil day. And through it all, remember that the battle is not yours or mine, but God's, and it's he who goes before us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for helping us to understand about the personality of Satan, his fall, his nature, and even some of his tactics. We will talk about more, but Father, let us be thinking about these things this week. Father, and we're moving towards putting on the armor of God, but until then, Lord, and we basically know what they are, but until then, Lord, may we stand firm for you and not give in to sin, especially as it comes from not only the world, not only the flesh, but also Satan. Father, we pray that we're not ignorant of our enemy and his ways, his methods, but we stand firm in your wisdom and in your truth of your word and that we continue especially the battle against counterfeit programs and teachings. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.